Hey guys, welcome to Relatable Happy Friday. We have got a fascinating conversation for you today with Dr. Deborah So. She wrote the book, The End of Gender. So she is on the left side of the political ideological aisle. She identifies as a feminist and she talks about um, how she has shifted in particular on the subject of children uh, transitioning their gender. She um, is a scientist and through the scientific process, she came to a different conclusion than the one that she had before. And so she's going to give us all all kinds of amazing insight today, and I'm so excited uh, for you to talk about that. After our conversation, I have um, a little bit of commentary, uh, but for right now, without further ado, here is Dr. Deborah Sill. Dr. So, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk about your book, The End of Gender. We were saying um, before we started recording that my mom and I have both read this and it's just been fascinating. For those who might not be familiar, can you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Yeah, thank you so much, I have to say, for having me. Um, so I am a former academic sex researcher. Um, I've since made the change to journalism. So as you mentioned, my first book, The End of Gender, has just come out with Simon & Schuster. And uh, I had noticed during the last few years of my PhD, when I was still in academia, that the climate was changing. I noticed that there were more and more things um, that legitimate experts didn't want to talk about, they didn't want to research, and there was one um, topic in particular pertaining to gender transitioning in very young children. So I, I wrote an op-ed speaking to the scientific research that shows that early transitioning is not actually the best way forward for these children um, because the vast majority of them are more likely to grow up to be gay in adulthood and not be transgender. And by publishing that op-ed was essentially me self-exiling from academia. So it's right. been, uh, I'm you know, I, I've never looked back. I've, I'm really happy that I made that decision. As we see the things that have been happening more recently, when anyone really tries to question anything about transgender orthodoxy or anything pertaining to gender, um, they really pay a price for it. Now, why do you think that is that the attitude seems to have shifted from scientific research to almost what is kind of referred to as scientism, this idea that you start with a foregone conclusion and you only um, highlight the data that fits into the conclusion that you had already made? What do you think has caused that shift in academia and in science? Well, I think at the core, most people are empathic, they're compassionate, and that's a good thing. But I really think it's gone way too far in the opposite direction, because I do think people with gender dysphoria, trans people, anyone who is basically different, especially when it comes to their gender, they have faced discrimination, legitimate discrimination in the past. But now we've gone so far in the complete opposite direction that it really is anything goes and to challenge that is seen as hateful and bigoted. And I also think it's because the, the academy has been taken over by activists. So when you look at, say, within academia, even scientific disciplines now are being tainted by activism. You have professors who are in disciplines that know nothing about science who are actually been given precedent in precedence in terms of their opinions, in terms of their so-called papers, even though they aren't scientific. A lot of their papers are not based in anything factual or in any sort of reality, but they are actually being given more weight than scientific research, legitimate scientific research. And then we see this also spreading into um, outside of the academy with regard to, say, media, with tech. Um, it's it's everywhere. This ideology is everywhere. And I, I think most people are understandably afraid to push up against it, one, because it can cost them their career and also their personal reputations. 
I am, am not a scientist, but from my understanding, you start with a hypothesis and then you go into the research and you publish the conclusion based on the actual data, no matter whether or not it, it matched with your hypothesis. Obviously, as you've just explained, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. And that's also what happened to you. You thought at one point that the correct path for children who struggled or had some kind of gender confusion or gender dysphoria was to transition. But as you researched, that conclusion didn't match your hypothesis. Is that is that correct? Yeah. I mean, as a scientist and a scientist by training, as you're saying, you you form hypotheses and wherever the data take you, that's where you land in terms of what your final conclusions are. That's how a good study is done. That's the only way you can get any sort of proper understanding or any sort of approximation of the truth. So myself, I used to think that early transitioning was the best way for kids with gender dysphoria because it, to me, it superficially made sense. If someone is struggling in their birth sex, they're uncomfortable in their bodies, why wouldn't you want to help those children feel more comfortable? But as I mentioned, all of the research literature shows that these kids are more likely to grow up to be gay. They're not going to be gender dysphoric. They're going to be perfectly content in their bodies past puberty. And so it doesn't make sense for them to transition prior to that point because there's a good chance that they're going to change their minds. And so uh, for myself, as I read the research papers and I, I learned more about the issue, I realized, okay, I'll change my opinion because that's what a good scientist does. But as you're saying, now what we see is people are basically reverse engineering science to fit whatever their particular goal is. And in this case, um, they generally are goals that have been determined by activist organizations. The activism is now spread into scientific organizations and medical organizations. So we see a completely anti-scientific approach when it comes to anything to do with gender identity. And people get really angry when someone like you or a journalist like Abigail Schreier brings up that, hey, there are consequences to this, and we're actually not basing these prescriptions for children on science, but rather on politics. Why do you think it is? And maybe you've already answered it in, in your first answer about people who are uh, who have different manifestations uh, of gender being discriminated. But why don't you think more people can just kind of agree, even if you think that people should transition as adults with gender dysphoria, why can't more people just agree, okay, maybe we should at least take a step back when it comes to to kids? Why can't people agree that maybe there needs to be a few more obstacles put up before we, for example, prescribe, you know, gender blo or uh, hormone blocking, uh, horm hormone blockers to an 11 year old? Right. And I'm in agreement. I do think that adults should be allowed to transition because research does show it can help them. And I think an adult is has obviously the cognitive capacity to make that kind of a decision. But with the children, I think part of it is that activists who have transitioned. Now, not all activists, because I have to say most the most uh, aggressive activists don't speak for the community. And actually, I have a lot of trans people who reach out to me and thank me for what I'm saying, because they're horrified at some of the things that activists claim the community wants when the community actually doesn't want those things. And many of them will say they are not in favor of young children transitioning. So I really want to make that clear, because I think it's really unfortunate. I think a lot of the activists who claim to speak on behalf of the community in many cases, they aren't trans themselves or they really are doing a disservice to the people they claim to be supporting. Um, in terms of why it's been so pushed with the children, I think for some of these activists, they are projecting themselves on the kids and they're saying because they transitioned later in life and they 
maybe would have benefited from transitioning earlier, that any child who says they feel this way will similarly benefit from transitioning at an earlier age. And I think also because the information that the public is being shown is so biased that most people genuinely believe that these kids would benefit from it and that no matter what the costs are in terms of the medicalization um, or the potential for regret, that it's it's better that they are put down this path because otherwise they will commit suicide. I mean, that's what they're being told, which is not true. It's not true. And and I think also people, as I mentioned, are genuinely compassionate. So they, they, it's a com- combination of that. They don't want these children to be struggling or suffering. And then they also are afraid that they, they see what happens when someone like me speaks up about it and gets called transphobic, even though I know I'm not. I don't I don't have any issue with trans people. My concern is just that the approach with these kids in particular is not based in science. And we are going to see, I, I don't doubt it, in a couple of years that there are going to be huge waves of detransitioners, mm. children who have transitioned who later change their mind and regret it. Can you talk about some of the physical, psychological consequences that come with transitioning a child or starting the transition for a child who probably would have grown up or grown out of the gender dysphoria that their parents and maybe psychologists thought that they had as as kids? Well, I would say the the biggest thing is if there is any sort of psychiatric comorbidity, those issues are not being dealt with. So right. if someone has a mood disorder, if they have an eating disorder, if they have a personality disorder, if they have sexual trauma, those things are not currently being discussed in therapy for the most part. Very, very few clinicians are willing to do any sort of therapy that is not facilitating transitioning, especially in kids, because they run the risk of losing their license because so-called conversion therapy for gender uh, identity is banned in 20 states here in Canada. It's it's about to be criminalized. So conversion therapy for sexual orientation and for gender identity are different things. And I always want to stress that I'm not in favor of conversion therapy for sexual orientation because sexual orientation is immutable. It can't be changed. But gender identity is not the same as sexual orientation. And it can change in children, young children, especially because they, they're developing, they're still trying to understand who they are. Um, so in terms of the side effects, so if you take cross-sex hormones, you face potential infertility, um, say testosterone, as we see with the wave of, of y- people born female who, who are presenting with rapid onset gender dysphoria. So they uh, present with a sudden desire to transition to male or a third gender often very quickly out of the blue with no previous history of gender dysphoria. If they take testosterone, I mean, it it permanently changes their voice. They will have facial hair. There will be changes to their um, sexual anatomy. Um, and, And the public is being told that it is completely safe for and harmless for a child to socially transition because that doesn't involve medical interventions. But that's not true because research does show that even a social transition is associated with going on to medical interventions and something like say puberty blockers is associated with going on to cross-sex hormones. So it's, it's very difficult for a child who is receiving a lot of attention and praise and uh, admiration from the adults in their, their life, from their peers, for them to suddenly turn around at some point and say, actually, I made a mistake. And I I've been asking everyone in my life to call me this new name and to refer to me by a different the opposite sex or a different gender, I I changed my mind and I want to go back to how I was being referred to before, it can be really shameful. And I think people really um, underestimate 
how difficult it is for a child who has gone so far at each milestone to actually turn around and decide that they, they were wrong. Right. You mentioned that in your research, and I've heard you talk about this before, that you have found that sexual orientation is immutable. Do you also believe then that um, someone who, an adult who identifies as a different gender, you also, it sounds like you believe that that is immutable as well because you support transition for adults. So can you talk about what, what you found or what you believe the biological difference is there between someone who says that they're homosexual versus someone who says that they are a different gender? Right. So there is a bit of overlap in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity when we look at, say, uh, brain imaging studies. So in the book, I, I talk about the different um, subtypes for people who are trans, and it is divided based on sexual orientation. So say if we have a trans woman, so someone who's born male and identifies as female, her brain was likely shifted in the direction of female in terms of prenatal uh, hormone exposure. And so someone who is born male identifies as female and is attracted to men is considered um, from a sexological perspective to be gay. So attracted to the same sex. And so sexology is the scientific study of sex and gender. So whether that individual chooses to identify as male and, and likely a gay male versus a trans woman who's attracted to men can be influenced by culture. I think it can also influ be influenced by the extent of that individual's biology. So um, in terms of the brain imaging research, it does show that sexual orientation is something that is hardwired in the brain. And there are differences between, say, gay and straight men. Um, but I'm not sure if that answers your question in terms of what the difference is. I think the biggest, the biggest takeaway I have is um, there have been studies that have come out saying that gender dysphoria is something hardwired also in the brain. But the, the issue is that those studies are conflated with sexual orientation because all of the people who are scanned, who have their brain scanned in those studies, also are sexually attracted to people who share their birth sex. So when you look at the results, you're, it's not clear whether what you're seeing is uh, the differences in their brain. You don't know if it's due to the fact that they are same sex or attracted to someone of the same sex and gay or because they are gender dysphoric. And then I also talk about how with trans women, there is another subtype um, for whom their desire to transition is motivated by uh, sexual arousal. But I always want to emphasize, I don't think that's a reason, again, for people to, to not transition. I don't think that should justify discrimination against trans people. I just think it's really important that we talk about this honestly, because that is the only way we're going to actually help this population. If there are certain truths that are deemed hateful and that, that are supposed to be swept under the rug, it's not going to help someone because if they transition and it's ultimately not what's right for them, again, they're going to have regret and they're going to have to live with these potentially irreversible side effects. So there are people, I actually interviewed someone on my podcast who he transitioned as an adult um, now. And, you know, he obviously thought that that was right for him at the time. He ended up, I, he ends up detransitioning and realizes that there were a lot of things in his life that led to that. He had a grandmother that dressed him in dresses when he was um, a child. And he believes that kind of led to him believing that he should be a woman and detransitioned. But um, obviously he no longer identifies in that way and sees that a lot of it was trauma induced. And so obviously his story is legitimate and he helps a lot of people who have been in his same situation. There are also adults 
that say, you know, I thought that I was gay, that I identified as gay. I was in male in male relationships and then they no longer are. Do you believe that those people are are lying? Do you think that's impossible? It's hard for me to say without actually speaking to someone who has had that experience. And I, I definitely don't want to sound like I'm casting judgment on anybody. Yeah. Um, I just I always want to speak to the scientific research. And in terms of the work that my colleagues are doing, I mean, these are world experts on research pertaining to sexual orientation. And it is biological. So I would say for maybe someone who's not comfortable with that, I mean, my my take would be to grow comfortable with with who you are but if it's something that say someone i mean i've heard i've heard individual cases where say someone wants to have a traditional family um and so they 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 struggle with the idea of being in a relationship or uh being with someone who is of the same sex as them but um i mean i i i guess i come from a different perspective in that way i i i myself i grew up in the gay community so i'm a, I'm a big supporter of gay rights and I, I just don't think me personally that there's anything wrong with with being gay. So I would I would ask someone to to ask why they're uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I don't think I'm necessarily even talking about whether it's right or wrong, but I'm trying to because I'm sure people are wondering about that. Like, what really is the difference? Because it sounds like you prescribe kind of um, or you approach a child or a person who says that they're gay, you approach that differently than you would approach a minor saying that they are a different gender. And I, I understand why, because there are prescriptions and there are uh, medical treatments that are associated with, you know, juvenile gender dysphoria that actually does have an effect on them for the rest of your life. But I'm trying to satiate, satiate some people's curiosity out there who might be wondering, hang on, like, what is the difference? Because like you said, a lot of people conflate uh, sexual orientation with gender identity. I think that there's a lot of people outside of the scientific community that probably do that too. And they might just be wrestling with knowing the difference and wrestling with knowing how do I view these things differently? If we're okay with talking about transgenderism like this, why aren't we okay with talking about sexual orientation like this? And so I was just trying to kind of get you to um, explain what you think the differences are to try to kind of clarify that for some people. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to add. If not, then that's that's fine too. I think that you did a good job of explaining that. I, I think the only thing I would add is for the kids especially because children with gender dysphoria and children who are gender non-conforming, so kids who behave more like the opposite sex than their birth sex. So if you have a little boy who's very feminine, he prefers girls' toys like dolls, his, his friends are all girls, he wants to wear dresses and you know wear his hair long. Um, that is That kind of behavior is, is associated with... Uh, later growing up to be gay. So what happens is if you take a child like that and, and you actually transition them to the opposite sex, they are more, they will grow up to appear to be straight because if you have a little boy who's who grows up to be attracted to men, if he transitions to female, when she grows up, she's going to appear to be a straight woman. So I'm, I'm not sure if that helps to clarify. I understand the confusion there. Um, but I, I would I just always go back to the research and I, if sexual orientation is shown to be something that is hardwired in the brain and it can't be changed, I think the way we approach that and, and even in, say, children who are pubertal and coming to realize uh, whom they're attracted to in terms of their romantic partners, uh, that that is different from uh, the fact that for gender identity, it can change in children. Okay. Okay. I'm sure that there's probably, I'd be interested to hear other perspectives 
on that since you do support adults transitioning and you do think that there is some biological factor when it comes to adults transitioning that they can't actually change that, that the best route for them is transitioning. So it almost sounds like in some cases you do believe that your gender identity is biological and can actually be different than your physical anatomy, correct? I do because, it, again, it's associated with prenatal hormonal uh, exposure. So it, it, in terms of how the brain develops, um, I, in the book I talk about some criticisms that uh, someone like me will face for being in, in support of adults transitioning and in their comparisons there to, um, say, like eating disorders or um, being transracial. I don't think those are similar comparisons because there are no, even if there are brain correlates associated with, say, eating disorders by someone, um, by encouraging someone to uh, indulge in their eating disorder, that's quite harmful to them. Whereas research meta-analyses have shown that transitioning in adults can help them actually alleviate gender dysphoria, can help them alleviate other mental health um, issues they may be experiencing. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, it does just come down to the research and what it's. I think probably goes. people making those comparisons, and I'm I'm not a scientist. I'm just trying to think through that reasoning. Is that they're probably also looking at the physical consequences to even an adult transitioning. That I know you write about in your book. There's the possibility of atrophy, obviously pumping your body with different hormones than the natural hormones that it's making has some. You know, it has some physical consequences, and so I think people are probably thinking not just about the 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 internal aspect of gender dysphoria, but also they're thinking, okay, well, eating disorders have physical consequences and transitioning, especially, especially surgical transitioning has physical consequences. And I think that there's probably some legitimate concern there from, from critics of, of your line of, of reasoning. Would you, do you kind of agree with that or see that side of it? Oh, I, I definitely see it. And I definitely think a good mental health professional will do a rigorous ass- assessment to determine whether transition is right for somebody. I definitely don't think it should be as it is now, which is it is basically taken at face value if someone wants to transition. I think even in adults that there should be, I don't think heavy gatekeeping is a good thing because I do think people should be able to access the care and, and support that they deserve. But at the same time, you need to be asking the right questions because if it is due to something else, if there are other mental health conditions or if there is some sort of comorbidity, that needs to be looked at too. I don't think it should be just because you're an adult that 100% we're on board with this. But right. I just think that that adults do obviously have greater emotional maturity. They understand the consequences of of these interventions in a way that a child cannot understand them. And so it's just that we can't have a conversation on regardless of which side you, you fall down, fall on it. Just this issue should not be so polarized. It should not be so political. Right. Right. And that's what I was going to ask as well, because we talk about how there just aren't enough obstacles. I won't even say obstacles, but I guess that is what comes to mind. Barriers or, or questions or people kind of pushing back on even children who are saying, you know, I kind of just decided that I am a different gender. As Abigail Schreier talks about, there can be, especially among among young girls, a social contagion aspect for some teenage girls, at least, that feel like they're the different gender. They can walk into a Planned Parenthood in some states at the age of 15 and say, OK, I want testosterone. I want different hormones. And the state, I mean, they are required, Planned Parenthood 
Parenthood is required to say, yes, and no one's questioning what else is going on, what's going on at home, what's going on at school, what are your friends doing? Like you said, what are the the other psychological issues that might be going on? And I guess you just answered this, but do you think that's a big problem among adults too? Because you do mention, which is obviously true, that the frontal lobe is developed for adults, that they're able to make decisions for themselves and actually see consequences that young people aren't. But if there are other psychological issues there, that decision-making could be inhibited in some way. It could also be affected by society or other you know, external factors in some way. So do you think that scientists and doctors are doing a good enough job, even with adults, to say, hey, we need to explore all avenues before we make this permanent decision, possibly, about your life and your identity? Um, I definitely think that there needs to be more concern in terms of even with adults in terms of doing, as I mentioned, the proper assessment and, and determining whether transition is actually right for them. Because I do think adults will be affected in terms of um, detransitioning and, and we'll see a huge spike in terms of the number of people who are experiencing this regret, as I said, in a couple of years. So. Um, I, I have one, the people I talk to in the trans community who say transitioned over 10 years ago will say that it is completely different now and, and what they experienced and the hoops they had to jump through, although they were difficult at times, I think there still needs to be some level of that. And even, even just some basic questions in terms of why do you want to transition and why do you think this is going to help you or, or what does your gender mean to you? Things like that are, are completely taken off the table now. So this um, this approach that is, I think, initially guided by people wanting to be more accepting, I think is really going to do a disservice. And I think there's going to be a backlash, unfortunately, potentially to the community, because when all of these people, adults and children, start detransitioning in a few years, I think people are going to grow more skeptical of the community and say, well, this is what you were supposedly asking for and look at what the effects of that are. So I, I guess I would really ask your audience not to judge the average transgender person based on this extreme ideology and, and these extreme demands, because most of them are not on board with that. Yeah. Well, I think it, you know, it, it scares a lot of people, not, not the people, but the ideology itself and seeing some of the aggressive people that have infiltrated, you know, even our political arena that are pushing, you know, particular bills. I know there was one in Victoria, Australia, which basically, you know, you talked about the difference between any kind of abusive conversion therapy and actually just some kind of healthy psychological, um, you know, counseling for young people. And Victoria, this bill is being passed that says, you know, you can't do any of that. You can't even travel out of the province in order to get that. You can't pray out loud uh, to your child. And I know that you and I don't uh, agree on, you know, necessarily the logical issues, but I think we'd probably agree that's a free speech and First Amendment issue. That's a parental rights issue. Um, And so I think that a lot of people are worried about that, not because they don't love transgender people or they think that they're not valuable, but because the face of the transgender movement is very aggressive and it it feels predatory um, upon schools, upon churches, upon people's uh, religious views, upon their children. And so you can kind of understand why, unfortunately, the people who are represented in this community and the actual movement itself and the politics and the aggression that they represent get conflated and people on the outside of it are very protective and are very worried about it. 
Oh, t- I told I do totally get that. I mean, I I'm a liberal, um, and I I'm super concerned because I think this makes all liberals look bad, and because very few liberals seem to be willing to challenge it. Um, I think th- there are going to be huge repercussions as a, as a result of this, and it it adds also further to the political divisiveness that we see more broadly. And I think that's it's really not a good direction that we're headed in, whether you're looking at, say, gender or race or any of any of these points. So especially with education, I, I get the concern there because children don't know any better. And if, if they're being taught ridiculous things like biological sex is a spectrum um, or that people can identify as a, a million different genders, I'm, I get why people are saying, well, we don't want anything to do with this. So I should mention in the book, I go through nine different myths and mm-hmm. I use a scientific approach to debunking these myths and explaining why they are not true. And so some of those myths, I mean, these are things that are being taught in children's curriculum, things like biological sex is a spectrum, that gender is a social construct, um, that gender neutral parenting works, that there are no sex differences in terms of dating and relationships when it comes to men and women. Um, and I, I just think more broadly, it's really harmful for society because we don't understand each other properly. And it, it's really impeding our ability to have a proper understanding of really anything. I mean, when science is now being denied and being denigrated and and these crazy ideas are instead being lifted up as though they are the truth, it's not going to be good for our society. And some, I would say, liberal ideas or leftist ideas are being challenged, I would say, by transgender ideology. You said that you grew up in the gay community and that's something that you're supportive of. But the logic of transgenderism kind of challenges that a little bit, because if, say, okay, trans men are men, that's something that we hear a lot, and that it doesn't matter whether it's whether someone has transitioned or, or not, it's really just something that you can declare, that you identify as, and that's as far as the definition of male really goes. Um, and so if you, are so if you are a homosexual man who is attracted to men, you are then supposed to be, according to transgender ideology, and again, this doesn't represent everyone in the transgender community, but what we're told from the activists is that you have to also be attracted to transgender men who are actually biological females. And so there's a lot of confusion and a lot of dissonance when it comes to, you know, different forms of sexuality. They don't seem to be congruent with with these transgender mantras that trans men are men and trans women are, are women. It's it's very confusing, especially for just the average observer, don't you think? Absolutely. And uh, I write in the book about how this leftist infighting is is probably pretty funny for people on the outside to watch because it's like it is. everyone is eating eating their own. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I mean, funny. I'm definitely... I, w- I mean, I would say that <laughs> it, it's a little funny, but it's also a little sad. I know you and I are on diff- totally different sides of the aisle, ideologically, politically, uh, religiously, and that's why I'm so excited to to have you on. But yes, from our perspective, and you know, particularly from a Christian perspective, I'm like, yeah, this is what happens. Things are confusing when you don't have any kind of, you know, what I believe, I know you disagree with this, any kind of moral foundation for what is right and what is wrong and what is good is what is bad and what is bad. Yeah, things are going to get really confusing when you don't have any kind of transcendent source of truth that tells you what is and what isn't. It's it's up for grabs. Anyone can say what is and what isn't. I mean, what is reality? What is absolute truth? What is morality? And so, yes, from my perspective, it does seem like everyone's just real confused. And I'm just glad that I don't have to participate in it. 
<laughs> well, I have to say, I appreciate you having me on knowing that we have those differences and that yeah, you were willing to, to read my book, knowing that there, there are probably a number of things that you disagree with in the book as well. But I, I think that's the way, you know, I, I also try to go outside of my comfort zone and, and seek information and, and resources that I may definitely. not agree with just to understand the other side. So yeah, definitely with say something like sexual orientation, if you have, we see how this is, this is playing out in the lesbian community and, and mm. I'm, I'm a straight woman, but from what I've seen, um, you will have, because what used to be considered, um, so sexual orientation is supposed to be based on sex, but now it's being, uh, defined as gender. So someone who identifies as a woman should be viewed as a woman. I have no issue referring to trans women as women, but also with the acknowledgement that there are some differences. And I have a chapter in the book that's, that specifically talks about this with regard to um, being in the, say, in the bedroom or relationships with sport, with prisons, um, right. women's spaces, language, everything. And so with, say, lesbians who are attracted to women, you have some trans women, not all, but some who will say, well, because I identify as a woman, you should also be attracted to me. And lesbians are saying, but you are not the same as a woman who was born a woman, especially right. if someone is preoperative. So um, th there's definitely been some some clashes in terms of the factions on the left. But again, I, let's say something like language as well. I mean, yeah. there, there's a lot of fighting right now with regard to... Um, some people who say that we should just use gender neutral language and other people saying no fem words that refer to women's bodies and reproductive capabilities are important. And, and right. it's basically the, the erasure of women to deny us that. Yeah. Do you, do you agree with that? I'm, I'm curious, you know, I'm, uh, I've got one child and I'm pregnant with my next. And so I'm on, you know, I follow a lot of, uh, of of the birth world. I listen to a lot of, you know, pregnancy birth podcasts and I follow a lot of those Instagrams. And honestly, it, it makes me uncomfortable to see words like chest feeding or birthing persons or gender neutral terms because, and I, I have to like check myself. I'm like, why does that bother me so much? And it does feel like the eraser of women. And that's not to say that women's only value or uniqueness is being able to have kids. Obviously there are you know, equally feminine women who who never have kids, but it is something that is very unique about women and has been for a long time almost seen as some kind of exclusively feminine superpower. And now we're saying that there's nothing feminine about it at all. There's nothing female about it that it has nothing to do with your anatomy. And there seems to just be a loss of value there, especially from the very people who say that they are the champions for women. I don't know. There's definitely a double standard because you don't see the same thing happening when it comes to ref referring to male body parts yeah. or male reproductive right. function. There's no qualification when, when say, news headlines come out or when studies come out. They are not qualifying the word man or male. They're not saying, oh, this is what we mean. But if, if there's any reference to anything that has to pertain to being female or a woman, they will qualify and say, well, we're not, of course, say something like being a mother. The most recent example I saw was birthing person. Right. So they're saying that not everyone who gives birth is a woman and right. not all women give birth. And I think, yes, okay, we can, we can acknowledge that to some degree that there are exceptions in that way. But why is it that using the word mother is seen as hateful? I think that's one step too far. Yeah. And I, again, I think it alienates people from wanting to be in favor or support 
support of the trans community or what these activists are at the core requesting, which is hopefully just equal rights and not trying to, to well, I mean, I, I don't think that's what the movement stands for anymore. But I, I have no issue with, with advocating for equal rights for trans people or, or people who are different. But I, I don't think the way to do that is to, to tell a particular group that who they are is hateful. Right. Yeah, you touched on something that I've I've thought about before. Why do you think it is that there seems to be more sensitivity and more dogmatism surrounding um, female adjectives and female words and making sure that it's inclusive as men who di- identify as women, but we don't see that as much the other way the other way around. Like, why is there uh, such an emphasis on making sure? that, um, you know, transgender women, biological males are able to enter women's spaces. I mean, we talk a lot about the locker rooms, the sports teams, the women's shelters, uh, the prisons, and making sure that uh, we are properly acknowledging their place in these female spaces. But we very rarely see it the other direction. Why do you think that is? I get asked that question a lot and I always want to be really careful the way I answer it. I would just say, I mean, the average trans man, you rarely see trans men screaming about any of these issues. They really just transition and they want to get on with their day. And I say power to them. Uh, I think if you, <laughs> what, what can I really say about it? I think if you look at trans women and, and look at trans men and, and look at what is the defining difference there, that will probably tell you why. Yeah, yeah. And it's also interesting because we're talking about, as we're talking about all this, we're talking about a very strict gender binary. Like we're talking about males transitioning to female and female transitioning to male, but the very same people who are using that language are at the same time saying there's, a, there's you know, countless genders. There's a million different genders. Gender is fluid. It's not a binary, but they kind of lie on themselves a little bit when they talk about transitioning and they talk about different spaces, having access to different spaces based on uh, based on their identity as a male or a female. Is there any acknowledgement in the you know front lines of the trans activist community that there's a some dissonance there in those two arguments? Yeah, because it's weird because tr- the being transgender used to refer to someone who identified as the opposite sex, which operates within sex and gender being binary as they are, uh, which science is in support of. Um, and now what you're seeing is this group of people who identify as a third gender or as non-binary or some other non-male and non-female gender saying that they too are part of the trans community. And I, part of it is this larger widening of the transgender umbrella to encompass anyone who is gender non-conforming, anyone who's different in terms of their gender to include cross-dressers and cross-dressing is complete, something completely different. Um, so I think part of that is, is a, as a way to inflate numbers so that it, that activists can say, well, look, if this percentage of the population identifies as transgender, this is further justification for greater acceptance. And I, I'm in favor of greater acceptance. I just don't think we need to inflate numbers to to uh, facilitate that. And so you will see people who are transgender who have um, transitioned to the opposite sex, who've medically transitioned in many cases, will say, we are not the same as people who are non-binary. I mean, for me to even say this, this is considered hateful and transphobic. And I just think that's ridiculous because science does not back up the idea that there are three genders. 
um, or that there are more than two. And um, and also with, with say, non-binary, people who identify this way usually will only change their haircut and take on some new pronouns. They won't even medically transition. Uh, it's it it's to me seems like more of a, a fad or something fashionable to do to fit in with your progressive friends. It's mm. and to me that comes across as actually quite flippant to trans right. people who have transitioned to the opposite sex because that is a, a big in, investment and a big endeavor, not just financially, I would say emotionally and mentally as well. Yeah. So there is some fighting going on there too. And there are all of these um these ideas that compete with one another, they don't make a lot of sense. So uh, I, th I think at the end of the day, people are hopefully going to, I think most people see it, and but they're just afraid to call it out because they don't want to deal with the backlash that's going to come from doing so. Yeah. I, I think one of the other competitive ideas is that it's, it's not just that you, you know, are there two genders? Apparently there are because you're talking about transitioning just from one to the other, or are there a million different genders? Um, but it's it's also the idea that gender is a social construct, but at the same time, it seems to the people who are saying that gender is a social construct that it's um, that it's very that it's very real to them. If gender really was a social construct, then surely we wouldn't be having such adamant and such passionate conversations. And so while they're simultaneously saying gender isn't real, it is very real <laughs> to the people who are talking about it or else we wouldn't have laws trying to say that you have to call people by the right pronoun or else you're going to be fined for it. Correct. It's, it's, that's another very weird contradiction. You have people saying that gender is a social construct, but then there's also the idea that trans people have the wrong brain sex in their body. So if gender is a social construct, how is that possible? And if gender is a social construct, then why does someone who is trans need to undergo medical interventions in order to live as the opposite sex? Why would they not be able to just construct their way there socially? So um, in terms of the research literature that shows gender is not a social construct, that it is influenced by biology, it comes down to the prenatal environment. And as we touched on earlier with trans people who identify more as the opposite sex, it similarly stems from from that uh, underlying cause. Yeah. So I, I don't think we have to pretend that, I mean, I'm sure I don't need to argue with you about this necessarily, but I, I don't think we have to pretend that gender is a social construct in order to advocate for equal rights for women. And I don't yeah. think that um, acknowledging biologically based sex differences between men and women is inherently sexist. It's only sexist what yeah. people choose to do with that information if they choose to use that as a way to discriminate against women. And I would go so far as to say that you can't assert that gender is a social construct and fight for equal rights for women. To I mean, un, from my understanding, there really is no basis for feminism if feminism is a movement for the equality of women and recognizing the equal worth of women, uh, which I have a lot of disagreements with feminist ideology in general. But if that is in its purest form what is supposed to be, uh, then there's really no basis for it if there's no definition of, of what a female is. I also think that a contradiction is that we are simultaneously, uh, we're, we're simultaneously hearing, uh, that, um, 
I just lost, hang on, I just lost my train of thought. I've been trying to ask this question for like five minutes and I, oh, okay, here's my question. We're simultaneously hearing that, okay, so it's fine for a man to, you know, wear a dress and and do whatever he wants to do and still be a man. Um, But at the same time, we're seeing like when Ellen Page said that, you know, uh, that, they're now uh, that they're now Elliot Page. People started posting pictures of um, from like 10 years ago wearing baggy clothes and saying, see, this has been the thing all along. So I'm like, OK, so if someone wears baggy clothes, that means they're a boy. I'm just confused. Are we reinforcing these very, very strict uh, gender stereotypes that a little boy who wants to play with a Barbie when he's four is actually a girl? Or should we not be expanding those to say, okay, just because a girl wears baggy clothes, doesn't that doesn't make her a boy. Or just because a boy wants to do ballet or play with dolls, that doesn't make him a girl. So there's also a contradiction there that I'm just not able to reconcile. To me, it is quite regressive to say that because I do see this happening more and more now that if, if a child say wears sex that is that the opposite sex tends to wear that that is a sign that they actually are trans or that they are not really their sex. So if you have a little girl who wants to wear boys clothing, that she must really be a boy. That to me is really strange. And I don't see why a little girl can't wear boys clothes or, or vice versa. Um, Going back to your point about uh, if gender is a social construct, I mean, I that was one of the biggest things that turned me off of feminism myself. I write in the book how I used to really be a hardcore feminist. Mm. And I just, as I learned more about the science and I realized that a lot of feminist ideas are not backed by science, it, it was off-putting because what you see then is women will feel this pressure to be more like men, even if they aren't that way. I don't think there's anything wrong for women to be more masculine or more male typical. But what happens when you say that gender is a social construct is that masculinity remains the gold standard and then femininity is seen as aberrations of that. So I don't see that as actually helpful or empowering of women because we're essentially telling women that in order to be treated equally or to be worthy of respect, you have to be more like men. Right. So that seems, like you said, very regressive. Do you think, just as we close this out, that there are more people, because of people like you, because of detransitioners that are kind of speaking up about their experiences of maybe feeling like they were either pressured or let too easily into de- into transition when they were uh, when they were young, people like Abigail Schreier, who are simply just telling stories without bias or without any kind of motivation, that there are more people waking up to, at the very least, the, the danger that this is posing um, on, on children who really just aren't being cared for the way that they should be cared for. Do you think that people are, are starting to realize that? I think so. I actually see it happening more so in the UK right now. And I'm hoping in North America that we'll catch up soon yeah. because uh, we, we just had this, um, the ruling that, that was in favor actually of the young detransitioner. She sued mm-hmm. the hospital who treated her. Right. And, um, so she was born female, uh, began the process to transition to male. And then in her early twenties said, actually, no, I'm, I'm going to go back to living as female. And so now in, in the UK, um, they ruled that children under 16 do, cannot consent to puberty blockers. And if a child does want to go down this path, they, that has to be court approved first. So that that's a landmark ruling. I really was very surprised. I'm very happy that they ruled in her favor. I didn't, I didn't think that was going to happen. So yeah. um, I do think it will eventually come over here and, and 
we will start to wake up more. But I, it's still very much glamorized um, on this side of the pond. And yeah. and I think once the lawsuits start happening, as you said, and more tra- detransition or start coming out, um, then people are not going to have a choice. They're not going to be able to turn a blind eye to it yeah. or pretend as they are right now saying that these people don't exist or that they're so statistically rare that they don't matter. Yeah. I mean, it's the same people who say that they support kids transitioning or people transitioning because they want people to identify as their authentic selves. They want them to be accepted. But the people who are detransitioning are also living as their authentic selves. They are they are telling their real stories and they are detransitioning and say, no, this is who I am. This is how I identify. And yet the very same people who are so empathetic towards people who transition, some of them are very cruel, outwardly, explicitly cruel and repressive towards people who detransition. I guess it's because they feel that it delegitimizes the entire idea of transgenderism. If someone can can detransition, it kind of, they probably feel delegitimizes the idea that a trans man is just a man, just as much a man as a biological man. Well, that's obviously not true. If someone can detransition into their their biological sex. So I don't know, maybe that's part of the anger behind it. But it does make me sad because I know that young woman in the UK that she's received a lot of persecution for for her case and, and for speaking out. It, it is hypocritical because I don't understand why it is only one side has been being given the empathy and being listened to. And I do sense that that is part of the reluctance that, say, activist groups or people who otherwise would be very compassionate, why they are so quick to dismiss detransitioners because they are afraid that they may be used as evidence as to why no one should be allowed to transition. And uh, I, I just think if this movement wants to continue to gain support or to gain support from the average sane person, they would do them a lot of good to take into consideration why did these, for the most part, young women decide to transition so quickly? What went wrong there? Because that will help them better understand who will benefit from transition. But when when you try to suppress the information, it doesn't look good. And it makes people yeah. wonder, well, what else are you hiding? Why, exactly. why do you need to pretend this doesn't exist if what you are saying was legitimate? And yeah. I think for some people also, maybe they are in this a similar position because when I talk to the, when I interview the detransitioners for my book, they will say that the people who are the most cruel to them are the ones who themselves don't feel secure in their mm. decision to transition. Right. And so I think for them, it may possibly be this nagging feeling that was this really the right choice for them. I think if you make a huge decision like that and you are secure in it and it was the right choice for you, you won't feel necessarily so threatened by people who are changing their minds. Yeah. You know, it really is a shame. And you're right. It does for people who are on the outside looking in and are, who are still trying to understand uh, this whole thing, which feels like it has happened so quickly, I think what feels like from, you know, like you have said, doesn't represent the entire transgender community, but the frontline activism that is so aggressive and in some ways so cruel and is using legislation to push this upon kids, using sex ed to push this upon kids, that's when people really start to get defensive, like, okay, we can have a conversation about adults, but you're coming after my kids at school. There are laws that are now saying that if my kid says that they're a different gender at school, that you don't have to tell me that my kid can now go to a Planned Parenthood and get and get hormones without my consent. You're, I mean, what you're doing is you're setting the entire thing up to be completely 
bulldozed by people who don't want you coming after their kids. And, um, man, it's just, I mean, it's just a mess. And I just really appreciate you making sense of it. I appreciate your honesty and saying you started out with one conclusion and the science led you to a different conclusion. And I know we probably disagree on a lot, um, but I really, really appreciate your work. I love your book and I just love your honesty and um, how compassionate you are while not being afraid to speak truth in a time when it's really, really unpopular. Um, Could you tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find the rest of your work and how they can buy your book? Yep. So I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Deborah So. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Deborah W. So. I post all my work and my media appearances there. You can get The End of Gender on. Uh, so there's hardcover, ebook, and audiobook that is read by me. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, Indigo, pretty much everywhere you buy books. Uh, Barnes and Noble, I think, is the one retailer that does have it in store. So I would say, please go buy it from them to thank them for doing that. And um, thank awesome. you so much for for having me. I really appreciate it, and I, I really appreciate this conversation. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much uh, for listening to that conversation. She is an amazing follow, an amazing person to read as well. She's just got, her life is very interesting, first of all, and her work has been very interesting as a sexologist. Obviously, she and I, we have different worldviews, and I would love to have her back on to talk a little bit more about the fundamentals of that. You guys know where I stand on a lot of this from a Christian biblical perspective. Go back and listen to an episode that I did a couple weeks ago called The Biblical Telos of Gender, um, where we talk about what the Bible says about gender. I would I would read her book Absolutely. Go out and get her book. I would read it along with another book that I've promoted a lot, which is Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. I would love to have the the two of them talk because I think they agree on so much and they also have different perspectives, obviously on religion, but I think also on psychology as well. So it'd be really interesting to hear that kind of academic um, discussion. So important that we talk about these uh, these issues with people who don't necessarily share all of our views. I think it sharpens us and it allows us to get a better understanding um, of what's going on and how other people see the issue. So I really hope that you enjoy that conversation. So for the next couple of weeks, just to let you guys know, because it's going to be Christmas next Friday and then it's going to be New Year's, I have already pre-recorded episodes for you guys. I never leave y'all hanging without content. Uh, so I have interviewed reviews um, coming out next Monday and Wednesday, and then the following Monday, Wednesday, and then the following Monday. And then after that, after January 4th, we'll start those uh, new episodes. And so um, you're really going to love the interviews that I've already pre-recorded. I've been like super anxious for them to come out because they're really fascinating conversations. And so I'm so excited for you to listen to them. So be on the lookout for those episodes next week and then the following week. And then the week of January, we will be back doing new shows with all the craziness that is sure to ensue in 2021. But since I won't get to talk to you like live or or actively, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I hope you have a wonderful time with your families. We have a lot to thank the Lord for this year, as crazy as it's been. Maybe it's been the hardest year of your life. Maybe you have lost loved ones. Maybe you've had loved ones in the hospital. Maybe you have been in isolation for a long time. Maybe you or your spouse or your parent uh, lost their job. And this this has been a tough year for you. 
Yes, there are millions and millions of people who feel the same way, unfortunately. And a lot of this, unfortunately, is self-imposed or is imposed by our government leaders and is not actually scientifically uh, necessary. And that is probably one of the most tragic parts of this whole thing. But look, we have a God who took on flesh to become Emmanuel, to be our Messiah, to be our perfect sacrifice, to sacrifice himself for our sins. So we, an unholy people, all of us could be reconciled to a holy God, could be forgiven forever, our slates wiped clean, to get a new identity, uh, to be righteous before God because of what Jesus did for us. And we get to spend forever with him because of that. And how much does he love us that he would send his own son to die uh, a death that he didn't have to die, to live a life that he didn't have to live, to be born uh, in a, a station in life that he didn't have to be born into. How humble does Jesus have to be to take on flesh, to condescend himself on our behalf, a rebellious people that didn't think that we needed to be saved, that didn't think that we needed to be pursued, who didn't know that we were lost, that who didn't know that we were sinners in need of a savior, but God in his perfect, redemptive, gracious, loving plan, he did that for us. He did that for us. And that is what Christmas represents. So if for nothing else, we still have a reason to rejoice this year. We still have a reason to rejoice if only for the gospel. That's enough. Those are our riches forever and ever and ever. Yes and amen. Praise God for that. Merry Christmas. I will see you guys back here on an episode that I've already recorded on Monday. 